Hello, hello. From Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to another edition of Hollywood Unscripted. I'm your host, Scott Talal of the Malibu Film Society. Joining us today is playwright, actor, screenwriter, and producer Tracy Letts. Welcome. Hi, how are you? Good. I saw that in doing some research. Let's see, your dad, Dennis, was an actor, and your mom was a college professor and novelist. Well, both my folks were English teachers. I grew up in a small town in southeastern Oklahoma called Durant, and my folks taught at a small college there called Southeastern Oklahoma State University. And then they both took early retirement from school teaching in their 50s and had surprising second careers. My mother as a novelist and my father as an actor. And I saw that one of the quotes from your mom, if I get this correct, was that she tried to be upbeat and funny, but in every one of your stories, everyone gets naked or dead. My mother had a terrific sense of humor and a sense of irony. I don't know. There may be some truth to that. At least there was when she said it. What's funny about that is that my mother's stories, her books, though they were real crowd pleasers and in some ways seem light, the truth is that there's a lot of darkness in my mom's books as well. So she was a a caution, as Mm -hmm. they say. Well, that's really where I wanted to go, is I wanted to find out where does the darkness come from in your work? You know, whether it's Bug or Killer Joe or certainly August Osage County, there's a lot of darkness there. Well, I don't know. I mean, some of it is just my natural inclination. I've always leaned toward the macabre or the strange. I don't know. I've always had an attraction for that kind of material. The truth is, too, that family history, you know, Augusto State County is not autobiographical per se, but it's based on real events in my family. My mother's father committed suicide when I was 10 years old by drowning himself in Fort Gibson Lake Mm. in Oklahoma. My grandmother then descended into years of downer addiction and had a huge impact on my family. So there's also some darkness baked into the family, but I don't know what family doesn't have stories like that. Not that story, but everybody's got some darkness in there somewhere. Yeah, but that had to be pretty intense for a 10-year-old. Well, it was. It was very impactful in my life. And then 30 years later, I wrote a play about it. And I remember at the time I was writing it, I was asking my dad a lot of questions about that time. I was using him for research as I tried to recall some of the things from that period. And he finally asked me, he said, why are you writing about this? And I said, well, the events of that time have always haunted me. They've stuck with me for 30 years. And he said, they have? (laughs) He was just rather surprised, taken aback, I think, the kind of impact that it had on a 10-year-old. But my folks, they were great, wonderful, funny, mercurial, curious, wickedly smart people. And they were great parents, and I love them, and I miss them like crazy. But events like the suicide of my grandfather are moments where sometimes families, they take their eye off the ball, you know. I, I think maybe they weren't noticing just the kind of impact it was having on a 10-year-old and a sensitive kid. But for your mom in particular, she was obviously dealing with a lot of issues on her own at that point. Yeah, yeah, dealing with a lot of stuff. You know, when she first read August Osage County, I was nervous about her reading it because I knew it would impact her that I was even writing the story. And when she first read it and sat down to talk with me about it, the very first thing she said was, you've been very kind to my mother. (laughs) referring to the the mother in August, who's a pretty monstrous figure, really, but Mm -hmm. uh, not as monstrous as my grandmother. So uh, even my mom seemed to recognize that. Did you know your grandmother well? I mean, were you close to them at all growing up? 
I knew him quite well. What was the family reaction? Were they supportive when you said that you wanted to pursue acting, playwriting? Oh, very much. I think they wanted me to get the hell out of Oklahoma. And I think they wanted to make sure that whatever I did, I felt a passion for that I didn't wind up with a boring job. Our house was filled with books and music and movies and conversation and interesting people. And so I think that they absolutely loved that I went into the arts because I've had a, I've had a lot of ups and downs as an artist, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's been an amazing, interesting journey for me. So I, I think that's what they would have wanted from me. I'm sure of it. When you look at why you got into the arts at such a young age and you look at what motivates you now, how has that changed over the years for you? Or has it? Oh, it's changed a lot. It's changed an awful lot. I think most artists, especially actors, will tell you that when they first get into it, if they're honest, they'll tell you that when they first get into it, they're looking for some kind of acceptance, approval, attention. They're looking for some personal strokes. They need that in their lives. And then hopefully you grow, you mature, you need those things less and less, and you begin to consider yourself a storyteller. You begin to see that what you do is not about what you get, but rather it's about what you are able to offer. And once you've become steeped in the language of storytelling, you take that on and you can sort of walk through the world and say, I am an artist and I am a storyteller and this is my purpose. This is my function. This is what I have to offer and to share. Yeah, the reasons you do it change dramatically. That is such a public experience, being an actor, especially on stage, whereas playwriting, screenwriting has got to be one of the loneliest jobs in the world. (laughs) True. Talk to us about both, if you will. They use different parts of my personality. I think there's a part of me that's very private and that feels introverted and shy in some ways more who I am. But there's another part of me that craves other people and interaction, social interaction. And I I was in love with movies as a kid. I was a movie buff and I just loved film and all the possibilities of film. But once I fell in love with theater, that experience of sharing a space with other people, the awareness that we're all in a room together, there's this contract made where the audience is going to watch this story that we tell, and that we're all living, breathing, vulnerable people in that moment. That social interaction is something I absolutely need, long for, and it's the real value of theater. I mean, the exchange that happens between an artist and the audience in the theater, it can actually be a very profound exchange. When I was doing the promotional tour for Lady Bird, actually, and I got flustered with a question like this, and I said something Uh, like plays are better than movies and movies are better than TV. And Greta got very excited because she said, it's true. She said, it's provably true. The reason you can prove it is because you think about the most profound experiences you've had in the theater or at a movie theater or watching TV at home. And they'll always stack up that the most profound experience you've had is watching live theater. I mean, it can also be soul crushing and boring, But when it's great, there's nothing else quite like it. So I crave the social side of performing in a theater, but I also very much crave the solitude of a writer. And then you add to that what you're able to do in both TV and film. I mean, this year alone, Ford versus Ferrari, you have such a presence that just pops. Thank you. 
you know, it's a great script. It was a great opportunity. I was thrilled when it came my way. I get asked to play a lot of those guys, a lot of heads of state or senators or titans of industry, what the Cohen brothers refer to as the man behind the desk. I get asked to play that stuff a lot. I look for the stuff that makes it different and interesting. I guess I get asked to play that stuff because, I don't know, because I'm a big guy, because I have big voice, uh, theater backgrounds, some physical awareness or physical presence. But the thing that makes it interesting for me is whatever's just beyond that. I mean, uh, Titan of Industry, you've seen it in a thousand TV shows and movies, and it can all feel kind of the same. So I look for the thing that makes it more interesting or more human or in the instance of Ford versus Ferrari, more vulnerable. I mean, I love the idea that we see this guy almost as this monolithic figure for a while until the top pops off and we get to see a lot of humanity and vulnerability and insecurity underneath all that stuff. And I I just thought it was beautifully written and a real gift for a performer to be able to play those parts. It's great. This year, you're also in Little Women, which is 180 degrees different. Well, but I'm still the man behind the desk. I'm still the uh, I'm still the gatekeeper. That's kind of the function of the man behind the desk. Our protagonist needs something, and I'm a person that they have to get around in order to get it. Mm-hmm. And so it fulfills kind of the same function, though it's in a very different package. Mr. Dashwood in Little Women is uh, he's he's grumpy and he's taciturn, but he's also a businessman and he's trying to make a buck and his profession, and I think he has genuine affection and admiration for the young writer who shows up in his office. It's a great part, great fun. I mean, I'm such a small part of the film, but I'm so, so thrilled to be a part of it because it's such a beautiful movie. Greta's done such a great job with it. And, of course, Lady Bird was extraordinary, and your role was a real departure, I think, for you. Yeah, no, I was so grateful to Greta because we actually are in a movie together called Wiener Dog, a Todd Salon's movie. And we don't work together in the film. We're in different vignettes in the movie. So we didn't meet each other until the movie premiered at Sundance Festival. And I was talking to her at the party, at the premiere party. Me and my wife met Greta, and we talked to her for 20 minutes or so. And she told me later, she said that was the moment where she had the idea of casting me as the father in Lady Bird because she realized in that moment, oh, I wasn't this hard ass that I played in all these movies and TV shows. But then, in fact, I was an old softy, and so to have the opportunity to just put on regular guy clothes and sit at a table and eat a piece of toast and drink a cup of coffee, uh, I, I leapt at the chance to do it. It did seem like a departure. It was like, oh, man, give me more of this. Let me do more of this, please. Please don't make me wear a suit. Is that going to come out in anything that you're writing now? Oh. Or where are you with writing? Well, I have a new play called The Minute. It premiered at Steppenwolf the year before last. And it's coming to Broadway this spring, and improbably, I'm in it. <laughs> I say improbably because it's never happened before. I've never been in anything I've written before. I've never had any interest in doing that. Frankly, I, I didn't want to do it now, but a lot of people turned it down. And we eventually got to a place on the list where I was like, well, then hell with it. I'll just do it. <laughs> so doing that in the spring, we open on Broadway, March the 15th. It's called The Minutes, and it's a political Well, I am told it's dangerous to use the word satire, so I'll just say it's a political play. But in terms of uh, future writing projects, do you see, now that you've scratched that itch with Lady Bird, do you see that coming out in your work anytime soon? I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know what's next. I've been doing so much. I've been working really hard 
for a long time, but I have a 20-month-old son. He's my first child, and I'm frankly a little tired of my workaholic lifestyle. And so I've booked this play that I've got coming up that's going to start in the spring and takes me through the summer of 2020. And then I don't have anything beyond that. I think I'm going to start to get a little choosier after that because I like, I like spending time with my boy. When you look at the acting projects that are offered to you, what is it that attracts you to take them, especially at a time in your life when you're looking at being more choosy and deciding on those roles? Quality of the writing, first and last. And that's the most important thing to me, just the quality of the writing. There are a lot of bad scripts out there. There are a lot of bad scripts that get made, and I just don't have the time or the energy to devote to trying to prop up some bad writing. And as an actor, a lot of times that's your function. Try to prop up bad writing, try to make bad writing sound better. It almost never works. Bad screenplays really never become good movies. So the only way I know to choose a project is by how well it's written. I mean, my opinion that it's well written. So I should say, if you see me in a movie, it's because I thought the script was good. That's why I'm in it. Mm -hmm. And I'm so lucky to be in a position to choose. You know, so much of my life, I was a broke, struggling, unemployed actor. And the idea of choosing a project to do is crazy. For me, it was always just like, I'll take whatever I can get. But I've been able to be choosy in the last few years, and it's a great position to be in. I'm very lucky. Several of your stage plays have been taken to the screen, and you've done those adaptations. Talk to us about the challenge of doing that adaptation. Oh, I hate it. I, I hate it. It's so hard because you've spent years honing this thing for the stage. I take a long time before I sit down to do any writing. I take a long time thinking about the piece, sometimes years thinking about what the piece is going to be. And then I tend to write it very quickly. And then there's years on the other side as it goes through rehearsals, workshops, performances, opening uh, first production, second production. And so I have a lot of time to work on it, years to work on it after that. And so after going through all of that and finalizing a play and saying, that's the play I set out to write, then I have to throw it all up in the air and try and figure out how to make it work on screen. Yeah, it's not a comfortable fit, I have to say. I don't think plays, for the most part, make good movies. It's weird because they have a lot in common with each other, and yet the things that make them different are so different. The movies are rhythmically so much different than plays. You know, I, I performed in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on Broadway, and I, I knew the movie very well, but I also knew the play very well. And once you get up and you start doing the play, you know, this is nothing like the movies. The movie is great. Mike Nichols made a great and impactful horror film called Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, but it shares very little with the play Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is so funny, which is so outrageously funny on the stage. And invariably, we would have people coming up to us after performances saying, I didn't realize it was so funny. It's because they were thinking about the film. So that process of translating something to the screen, I find it really challenging, really hard. And in fact, the last few I've written, when the movies have come calling, I've just said, "Eh, no, not interested, not looking to do that again. Having said that, the truth is that I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, and my access to things like Who's Fred Virginia Woolf and Streetcar Named Desire and Shakespeare and all that other stuff, my access to that stuff came through the movies. Mm -hmm. So the fact that there are kids or young adults or teenagers in small towns in Oklahoma who can watch August Osage County, the film, and hear that story in a way that may speak to them. Let's face it, they're not going to see the play on Broadway. 
they can't pay $100 for Broadway ticket or get to New York. And so the idea that I can put those stories out into the world on film does become important to me. And I am proud of those movies because I have a way to reach further into communities and into the world of young artists and maybe have some impact on them that, that I couldn't have otherwise. Now, I know when you did August Osage County and took it to the screen that you did change the ending and you took it a little bit further. Talk to us about why that happened. Well, I didn't really change the ending. I mean, the truth is some changes got made on the film of August Osage County. Some choices got made that were taken out of my hand, Mm. which is another frustrating part about the process of adaptation. You know, with Bug and Killer Joe, I was working with William Friedkin, who's a great filmmaker and who was very true to my scripts. At the same time, I still consider them William Friedkin movies more than I consider them Tracy Letts plays. I mean, they are very much Billy's films, but he was very true to the material. And the truth is, they're such low-budget enterprises, and Billy has a lot of stature, and so they allowed Billy to make the movie he wants to make. Billy's got final cut. But on a movie like August Osage County, where there are a lot more people involved in that process and the writer gets bumped even further down the totem pole. So some choices get made that are above your pay grade. You just got to kind of throw your hands up in the air and say, that's Hollywood. That's, Mm. That's the movie business. Well, the boy has obviously left Oklahoma, but has Oklahoma ever left the boy? Well, you could ask anybody that question. I mean, every time I go back to Oklahoma, it feels deeply familiar to me. It feels as alien as it did when I lived there. So it's a strange experience. I know that I was at a thing recently and Alfrey Woodard was being celebrated and I was so thrilled because she's from Tulsa. So we do kind of keep an eye on each other. The Okies who are in this business, we like to celebrate each other. That's a good feeling. Was there a time when you were living in Los Angeles? Because there sure are a lot of Okies in California. Yeah, I was out in LA for a little while. I came out late 97 and I was there until... 2001. So I gave it a shot for about four years in LA and I worked a little bit. I booked some TV gigs. That's when I did my Seinfeld episode. I shot some episodic television while I was there, but it just wasn't, I wasn't comfortable in front of a camera. I wasn't comfortable in a set. The work was way too sporadic for me to get comfortable with it. And I said, the hell with this. I'm going back to Chicago and I'm going to take a vow of poverty and work in the theater because Those of us who live and work in Chicago know that you can always find work there. You can't make any money, but there's always work, and it's good work. It's uh, rigorous. And so I went back to Chicago to do what it is I love to do, and August Osage County happened a couple of years later, and so much for the vow of poverty. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. You mentioned growing up in Oklahoma as that young boy, that film was so impactful on your decision to pursue this. What were the films that really stand out as driving you into this business? Believe it or not, Hitchcock. I loved Hitchcock. It was so foreign and provocative and 
thoughtful and deep in its way, and yet just incredibly entertaining. I loved everything about those movies. There was something magical about those movies to me, and I was obsessed with Alfred Hitchcock when I was a kid, just obsessed. When you started acting, had your dad already started in on his second career? Did he start in after you? Talk to us about how that timing came together. Well, the first play I remember seeing was Kill a Mockingbird at the local college with my father playing Atticus. So the first time I ever saw a stage play, my dad was playing Atticus Finch. Wow. And then the first play I ever did was at a community theater in Tishomingo, Oklahoma, and my father was in the play. Mm. The first play I ever did was with my dad. Wow. And then the first time I ever did a play in which I was any good was a play that my father directed. So my dad was a big part of my development as an artist and as an actor. In what ways? Well, he was, uh, he was really good, for one thing. He was a very good actor. And my dad had great taste and uh, editorial sense and a uh, great sense of economy. And I, I remember uh, that play in which he directed me. He co-directed a production of Skin of Our Teeth at our local community theater in Durant, Oklahoma. It was a super low-budget thing, but I remember I was playing the telegraph boy in that production and in a speech. And at one point, Dad came up to me and said, why don't you try just saying it? It sounds like you're proclaiming everything. And it was the first sort of acting lesson I ever got where I went up on stage the next time and I just spoke simply and truthfully in a room and I felt the power of that. I felt people responding to the power of a voice speaking simply and truthfully, quietly even, in a room. That it was a compelling thing to watch and to listen to. So dad was a very important part of my development as an artist. And then I started pursuing it professionally, as I say. I mean, I was right out of high school, and I went to Dallas with my little headshot and resume and started trying to get work. And it was right around then that Dad himself started looking into it, too, professionally. You know, a lot of films and TV shows were being shot in Texas at the time. They were sort of touting it as the third coast. This is the uh, mid-'80s. They built this big soundstage out at Las Colinas, and they were making a lot of movies there. Tender Mercies was shot in Texas, and... Uh, Places in the Heart, and a lot of films like that were being shot in Texas. And so I went to Dallas, and Dad started commuting to Dallas to audition for stuff. And Dad started working quite a bit. He made about 40 films, TV shows, after he retired from school teaching. And, you know, often character parts, you know, the sheriff, the judge, again, guys in positions of authority. My dad was also a big guy and had a big voice and had taught school for a lot of years. So my dad had quite a bit of gravity. So we both started working in films and TV around the same time. I mean, the truth is dad was working a hell of a lot more than I was in film and TV at that point. But there was a point at which it shifted. I'm wondering, was there ever kind of a two-way street where he started learning from you? Well, the remarkable thing was when I, I cast him in August Osage County, the original production of the play at Steppenwolf. Of course, at the time, we didn't know it was going to be quite the, the hit it turned out to be, but I was putting the show together, and I actually had another actor cast in the role, and he got a film, and he dropped out well before we started, but I had to recast the part, and the director, Anna Shapiro, and her husband, John Barford, who was also in the show, they started lobbying from my dad. They had met my dad over the years, and they thought dad would be a great choice, and I thought, well, I, I'm going to have to think about that just because... Well, you think about having your parent in the workplace. It's just like, can I do the work I need to do if my parent is sitting there watching me do this work? And I didn't have to think about it for very long. I mean, I was 40 years old at that point. My dad and I got along famously. We loved each other dearly. And I, 
and I knew how good he was. And so I thought, no, I'm confident enough in what I need to do in the room that my play will actually benefit from having dad there to help me with it. I wasn't even sure he would accept. He accepted immediately. He Mm. said, yes, I'd love to do it. And he came up to Chicago and he did the play and he was fantastic in the show. He was great in the play. He was a great member of our company. He loved watching me work. He loved watching professional actors at work. Dad had always had such a love for the art form and such a fascination with it that, you know, he played the patriarch of this family and he had a scene about 15 minutes at the top of the show and then doesn't return in the show. But he used to come to rehearsals just to watch the other actors work just because he was so fascinated by the process, the questions they asked, the interrogation of the script, the changes I was making, the contribution of the director. Dad was just very entertained and interested by all of that. And so he was an integral part of our production. I would imagine that really was something quite special. It was very special. You know, between the time we did the production in Chicago and the time we went to Broadway a couple of months later, my father was diagnosed with lung cancer. Mm. And so we took the show to Broadway and I had informed the producers that my dad had lung cancer and uh, the producers were great. And they you know, made sure that they helped in any way we needed help. And I had to get my folks relocated to New York, get my dad enrolled for treatment at Sloan Kettering to give my dad a chance to do the play, to open the play on Broadway, my Broadway debut and his Broadway debut as well. We were delayed by a stage hand strike for a few weeks, which was pretty horrible. But we eventually got the show open in middle of December. And my father had to leave the show in January and then he died in February. And, you know, at the time he died, of course, I had a lot of people saying, you're going to be really glad that you had this experience with your father. Of course, I didn't want to hear it. I was reeling with grief over my father's death. But, of course, as time has gone by, that has been more and more true for me. That I was really glad that Dad and I got a chance to do that together. The experience of doing that with my father is just indescribable. There's nothing really in my career that's approached it. And for my dad, not only for his own benefit, for his own strokes, for his own life as an artist, to be able to make a Broadway debut in his 70s was deeply moving for him. But to do it in his son's play, his son's play that was being celebrated, it was an extraordinary experience. And your mom got to see all of this happen. Yeah, she did. For you, for the subject of an interview, I mean, you you do so many of these Is there ever been anything that you wanted to talk about that you've never really had a chance to express? Oh, that's an interesting question. I I say to my wife with some frequency, I say, you know, after I'm gone, people can say whatever the hell they want to say about me. Obviously, it's not going to make any difference to me. I said, but don't ever let anybody think I took it for granted because I grew up, it was not exactly hard times. I mean, my folks were school teachers, granted Oklahoma school teachers, so not exactly the best paid school teachers in the profession. But I grew up with school teacher parents and I grew up with a small rural community in Oklahoma. The idea that I could be making movies and writing plays and acting in plays and going to Broadway and it's, well, not exactly the stuff of fairy tales, but it's my greatest dreams about this business. It's not enough to say they've come true. They've exceeded my wildest expectations. Mm. So I, I, I take none of it for granted. I'm deeply, deeply grateful for the luck. Some of it's hard work. Some of it's perseverance. Some of it's talent. There's a hell of a lot of luck, too, and I'm very grateful for it. Well, 
Pulitzer and Tony Award-winning playwright, stage, film, television actor, screenwriter, and producer Tracy Letts. Thank you so much for joining us, and best of luck with your next move to Broadway. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Hollywood Unscripted is created by Kurt Co Media and presented in cooperation with the Malibu Film Society. This episode was hosted by Scott Talal, with call-in guest Tracy Letts. Produced and edited by Jenny Curtis. Sound engineering by Michael Kennedy. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast for more conversations with top industry professionals discussing the movies you love. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. 